cliffcentral.com. Yes, indeed, cliffcentral.com, and we have lots to get to this morning, lots to talk about, and plenty of people on the Burning Platform to address all of your questions. Um, the Burning Platform, as always, is brought to you by Nando's, and it's your chance once a week to check in on all the big stories that are going on, all the big um, all the big concerns you may have in politics, in society, in the economy, and we get to talk to some really, really smart people. Chief among them is our own Pumi Mashiko. Hello, Pums. We also have this morning, we have return champion, Canton Pele. Hey, Canton, how are you? Morning, guys. Morning. Good to be back. Good to see you. Oh, dear, Canton. (laughs) India's from Durban. Take him over. (laughs) Pooby, just especially for you, I brought my pink yamulka today. (laughs) (laughs) You look like a cardinal. You look, you like, look a, like a cardinal. A cardinal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. What's yes, the story? So. What's the story of the pink yamulka? Um, it was actually a um, one of the giveaways at uh, a Jewish wedding that I went to in two thousand and three. But um, uh, I was wearing it today for a couple of reasons. The one is that my uh, daughter has lost a great uncle who is oh. uh, is jewish and uh, the other is that i was watching big daddy liberty's show briefly yesterday and i thought you know this was a good combination to actually hit them with okay very nice well i'm sorry to hear about your daughter's great uncle um, i'm sorry obviously to hear about anybody who's uh, who's who's lost family and friends in the last little while because we we've just been motoring on you know as soon as you uh, you hear stories like that, you think, oh, another person, another another family, another individual who was making a contribution to society, and now they're gone. It's it's very unfortunate. Yeah, so it's, except you see, the problem is when it's people that you like. So, yeah. you know, I was no, quite fond it. of Leon, so, no. so I'm also pleased to welcome this morning uh, Dr. Anthony Turton, who joins us uh, also from his home. So we've got everybody at home, but we're all part of the uh, the show this morning. So, uh, Dr. Turton, nice to see you. Thank you very much for making some time for us. Good morning to you and the listeners. Nice to be on board. Very good. So we've got lots to talk about today. Um, I'll start off with, with Anthony. Now, of course, you're a political scientist. Uh, you uh, specialize in transboundary resource management, something Canton is probably going to want to talk about in a short while is water. But let's just talk about that letter of yours that went round um, during the, 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 the riots and looting in Durban. I'm sure you were surprised by how quickly people picked up on it and passed it around and how many people were were suddenly aware of uh, of, of stuff that is usually in the realm of political science. Obviously, everybody was nervous about what was going on, but it, I think it, it struck a chord. And the gist of what you were saying is, you know what? Um, I'm not surprised by the fact that the intelligence services have, have not delivered the way that they should have. And you also said it's amazing how communities will stand together in times like this and do the right thing. Yes, indeed. Um, I happen to be an analytical person. I always have been my whole life, and uh, I happen to have uh, served as, a, as, a, as an intelligence officer during uh, our transition to democracy. In fact, I was, I was party to the, to the establishment of the intelligence uh, framework uh, uh, and structures that, that on which Kudessa was based. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I was actually deployed out into, the, uh, into Eastern Europe um, in 1989. Um, because at that point in time, the USSR had collapsed and, and Russia was receding, and we wanted to know if Russia was going to come to the assistance of, you know, of, the, of the various countries around the world, uh, because if they weren't, then we could, in fact, negotiate uh, with, with, uh, without fear of, of external interference. Right. And during that period, uh, I, I witnessed a number of, 
of, of absolutely monumental events taking place, most notably the, uh, the, the, the dismantling of the Iron Curtain. And I saw stakes fall one by one by one, uh, stakes that I thought in my lifetime we would never see falling. So I, I got a sense uh, two weeks ago in KZN, KZN that we were seeing a pivotal moment in South Africa as well, literally a, a moment where a completely new thing was born. And, uh, and I can expand on that if you want to, but that, that's why sure. that's what prompted me to write that because I, I wrote it as an analytical piece just to help, firstly to help myself uh, kind of make sense of, 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 of what's going on. But then also because I shared it, uh, you know, other people also uh, got some sort of sense out of it. So yeah, I'm no, glad terrific. That went it's very, very good stuff. I know Pumi and, and Canton have got a whole bunch of questions for you. And I'm just thinking when you brought up Russia and you brought up, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, there's so much we've got to get into with uh, Didi Mabuza and with this cyber attack. And Pumi and I were talking about it this morning already. Um, so we could go there immediately. But let's just talk about water because very often on the burning platform, we get bogged down in current affairs and we start talking about them and we go round and round in circles. Water is something that I know is of huge paramount importance to all of us because we we don't really think about it until we don't have it. And when we don't have it, it is all we think about. And we have a problem in this country. We're a, a, we, we constantly get uh, told by people we're a water-scarce state and we need to protect our water. We haven't really built any new dams in the last 20 years, as far as I can tell. We haven't necessarily been managing what water we have very well up to now. Um, the Department of Water Affairs and Sanitation has been mismanaged horrendously over the past while. And ordinary people are concerned that one day they might turn on the tap and nothing comes out, even though they're paying their rates and taxes. And of course, there are so many people in this country who've never had a tap to turn on because it's never been provided to them infrastructurally. Where, where are you on water and what can you tell us about what the future of water in this country might look like? Well, yeah, Gareth, you've said a lot of stuff there, you know, uh, about South Africa being uh, being a, a water-constrained country. Uh, we have always been a water-constrained country. <clears throat> the first book that was ever written about water resource management was written by a man called J.C. Brown in the, in, the, in 1840s, around about there, uh, talking about the aridity of the Cape Colony and reasons for the aridity, which he blamed on lazy local people, as they, as they were wont to do in those days. And uh, he called for the construction of dams. And uh, that mm -hmm. led uh, in, in 1850, 1860 to the first book written by a South African, uh, um, uh, a, a man called Baines, Thomas Bain, uh, a road engineer, he wrote uh, a book on, uh, on dam building, water finding dam building. And he basically uh, created this sort of hydraulic mission for a future South Africa. Mm -hmm. And if you fast forward from that, uh, from his book was published in about, uh, in about 1860, and it took a century of time for his idea, which was to take water from the Orange River, uh, roughly near, 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 um, Uppington, and to uh, relay through a series of canals over the escarpment into Port Elizabeth. It took a century for that idea, from 1850 to 18 to, to 1960, uh, uh, for that idea to basically take root, and that became the foundation uh, of our of our industrializing economy. Uh, this whole idea of engineered uh, engineered uh, uh, water systems. So, you know, we, we have always been water constrained. That is why the Department of Water Affairs was created. They were created to manage that uncertainty. And of course, we've not, we now live in a highly engineered hydraulic system. Uh, where, for example, Johannesburg is the only city in the world, not on a river, not on a lake, not on a waterfront, but on a continental watershed divide. So, uh, so we, we, we're talking in the Gauteng province of about, 
of about 40% of the population of the country that sustains about 60% of the uh, of the economic output of the country that's 100% reliant on our ability to pump water uphill <laughs> from distant river basins uh, using uh, using surplus energy that we no longer have and uh, you know this is seriously a problem because wow. there's another problem that comes out of that because the because the Gauteng area is so is so industrialized and because it's on the watershed divide all of the sewage return flows go back into rivers, into rivers upstream of someone else's drinking water. So mm. we are now recycling untreated sewage, and that's just simply a fact of life because we need engineers, we need smart people to run these systems. They've taken a century to build, and it's taken two decades to, 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 to break up. My God, frightening specter that. Canton, I know this is close to your heart. Do you want to talk to Anthony and Pumi? I know you've got questions too. Yeah, Gareth, you and I touched about the, on this uh, yesterday over lunch, mm-hmm. the, the entire idea of looking at water is the next thing that we need to be concentrating on. I'm going to disagree with Anthony at, at one fundamental level with you know the entire concept of us being a water-scarce country. I don't think that there's such a thing as a water-scarce country. I think we have mismanaged resources. And if you want an example of why this is so, just take a look at Israel, because they literally pluck water out of the air and they keep that entire part of the Middle East alive. In, in fact, all Israel wants to do, if they uh, has to do, if they want to actually cause serious cuck in terms of the, uh, the Palestinian territories, is to just turn off the water supply. Because all of that water that they get in both the West Bank and Gaza comes from Israel. So what I'm trying to say is that the thought processes that were in place at the time of Thomas Bain are completely irrelevant in terms of how we should be looking at water supplies today. We really should be looking at a scenario where we are doing far more water harvesting in the rainfall catchment areas. And you know, in uh, in Johannesburg especially, we have almost every day during the summer, almost like clockwork at, uh, at five o'clock in the evening, you'll have a thunderstorm. And all of that uh, ends up in all of these little rivers that we have around Johannesburg. The Yuxke runs um, you know, about 400 meters away from my home. And all of that, uh, uh, the rain from this area just flows into the Yorkske, from the Yorkske flows into the crocodile, and eventually it just ends up not being used. Mm. When we get to the point of, of saying, let's forget the way in which we used to manage water in the past. Let's forget about the fact that uh, building great dams was the way in which we used to do things because we also know today the environmental consequences of dam building in terms of uh, downstream wildlife that used to uh, be supported by that water supply. All of these things we need to actually be looking at changing. But I think it starts with something that we've talked about on the show several times, the idea of going off-grid in terms of your own water supply. Invest that money on putting in that septic tank, invest that money on putting in that borehole, and then put in the water purification systems that today will now end up being powered by solar. Hmm. So you are creating uh, less dependence on the traditional infrastructure. I don't have any hopes whatsoever that the ANC government is ever going to be able to address the backlog that we have just in terms of maintenance of the existing water infrastructure that was handed over by the apartheid regime. It's just not going to happen. The backlog is just so massive. So we need to start looking at uh, at alternatives. It's kind of exactly like Africa ended up leapfrogging the entire landline uh, 
uh, rollout by just going directly to mobile. We need to look at uh, at things that are that are kind of similar. What do you say to that, Anthony? Yeah, look, uh, well, I, I agree. Uh, funny enough, I mean, I, I, the, I'm not at any issue with any of the points that you've made there. Um, I gave a talk at Gibbs, you know, the Gordon Institute of Business Science a couple of years ago, so it's available in video clip on, on, on YouTube somewhere, mm-hmm. where I spoke about the fact that South Africa is not water constrained. We are, in fact, ingenuity constrained, <laughs> without any question of doubt, okay? But uh, 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 I'm busy right now, as we speak, uh, establishing a uh, an entity in the Middle East uh, where we are bringing together a, a, a hub uh, literally to 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 foster new innovation and to bring that into into face-to-face contact with investors into next generation technology uh, the reality of the situation i mean it's a very complex issue and we can we can simplify it here but the, the reality of the situation is that we are only constrained by the amount of fresh water available on the planet uh, the, the the planet is is, is two-thirds uh, water two-thirds mm-hmm. ocean of the total volume of water on the planet uh, uh, only less than two percent of that water is fresh water and that fresh water that's what we have constrained uh, okay and uh, i can i can go down into uh, you know, into a lot of numbers but but the important thing is that water is a flux that moves in time and space but we manage it as a stock a stock is a finite volume that you use once and throw away so, so that's the fundamental problem. In fact, later on today, I'm talking on a on a on a webinar about uh, how, how we're going to spend this one trillion rand that is needed just to repair our broken our broken hydraulic uh, system in South Africa. One trillion rand is needed not to take it to the next generation technology, just to fix what's broken. Okay. Sure. So, how are we going to raise that money? How are we going to how, what are you going to do with that money, etc. So, ultimately, I'll just give you some some numbers uh, because because uh, once you understand the numbers, then you can see we can really ground this debate in some reality okay so so i'm going to give you three numbers the first number is 48 48 billion cubic meters 48 bcm that number used to be 53 and that is the total volume of all the water available in all of our rivers and if you go back if you want to unpack that now if you want to get back into some sort of bigger science okay a fundamental problem in 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 africa is our is our conversion of rainfall into runoff if you take a, a hundred units of rain falling out of the sky uh, in Africa, 20 units of rain end up in the river. 80 units of rain go somewhere else. They get they get lost to evaporation. But if you look if you look in uh, uh, in South Africa, only eight units of rain end up in the river. So we lose 92 units of rainfall for every for every 100 units of rainfall. 92 units are lost to evaporation. Our problem is an evaporation problem, not a storage problem. And if you look at if you convert that now that that that, that, that uh, what's called stream flow. If you convert that stream flow, which is now the eight units, uh, uh, into uh, you know, into something useful, uh, basically you want to store it in a dam. There's no other way to store water other than in a dam, although there are new merging technologies. But uh, if you take, for example, 100% of the stream flow of the Orange River, mm-hmm. we've built almost three times more storage capacity than we have water in the river. So we cannot build any more dams. That's the whole problem. We can't build dams. So so when people get this bankrupt idea, this, oh, we'll just build another idea, another dam. Well, they so lost this in a century ago thinking that well, it's just not going to happen. So, so the 53 is what we used to have. We've now revised it down systematically down to 48 uh, with climate change, with all kinds of environmental things happening, etc. So that's the total volume we have in, our, in, in all of our rivers. Now the next number is 38, 38 billion cubic meters, which is the total volume of all of the water in all of our dams. That's our storage capacity. So 38 right. is less than 40. So, so, so un, unimagined that people say, well, we can, we can store another 10 more. No, we can't because then we turn the rivers into open sewers. 
uh, the river, the river has to has to still uh, to perform ecological activities. It has to still clean itself up, etc., because it's the receiving water body for all of our waste. So, so thirty eight is as big as we are going to get. Now the kicker, now the big number, in 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 twenty thirty five, if big word if if we're going to create full employment for all of our angry, frustrated people, if we're going to create full employment, we need sixty three bcm. Our challenge is how to turn 38 into 63. That is our technical challenge. That is what I'm trying to, I've been trying to get our president to say on a public platform for the last 15 years, and I have to say I've, I've become a dismal failure in that regard. Sure. What we've got to do is we've got to, we've got to recycle our total volume of water 1.6 times, multiply 38 by 1.6, and you're there, bingo, there you're at 63. That's the future vision of our country. That is the investment platform. That is the Marshall Plan. That is how we can use water infrastructure to basically kickstart our economy and just and just start bringing people back into the world. I, w- like I want to. Concept. I want to bring Pumi in here. You look like you got a question, Pums. Go for it. Well, I do have a question, and my question is always around how that opportunity translates for young people today studying engineering for companies starting up, there is an opportunity to privately, outside of the government, leave them alone with their um, inefficiency, that we can create those kinds of jobs and those kinds of opportunities and that kind of water security privately. Is it possible? Yes, we have to start creating an enabling environment for those sort of things. You see, because ultimately we've got to we've got to manage water as nature manages water. The water you 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 put in your mouth this morning when you clean your teeth went through a dinosaur's kidney sixty five million years ago. This is a fact. All of our water, all of our water is recycled. Yeah. All of our water is recycled. Right. So we've got to we've got to partner with nature, but we've got to use more technologies. Now there's all kinds of really really important things happening in this, in this new economy coming out now. And you know, one of the things that's happening in the new economy now is that desalination is becoming more and more uh, efficient. And part of that efficiency is because we are also looking at solar. Uh, we're looking at solar power, alternative energy sources. But now it gets even more interesting because it's at the hydrogen economy, which we're looking at in the Middle East, the place that I'm working on, where we're looking at the hydrogen economy where you use electricity generated by solar or wind to, to basically split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what the Jeff the flight to the place the other day was about, about mm-hmm. launching the hydrogen economy. But when you do that, you actually use hydrogen as a store for energy that you can use some other time in some other place. So now we've got a whole new revolution change in economic terms, and in socioeconomic terms, and this is the kind of excited thing that we should we should be talking about. We've tried to establish it in South Africa. It's always consistently on deaf ears. Okay. So we're now taking our efforts to parts of the world where people are, are, are interested. They're setting it up. It's happening because they realize that this is the way we're going to go. I think this is this is. Karen, a fa- I have a huge echo. Is oh. there anything? Can the guys at the studio do something? I have a huge echo, um, and I think a lot of people are having the same problem. Okay, we'll see if we can figure that out, Pums. Um, I'm going to make some changes on my side to the settings, but let's let's just uh, talk about change. Let's get on to some of the more <clears throat> some of the more pressing issues that are going on in society, and I'd like to bring in Canthan, Pumi, and Anthony on these things because there are a lot of questions that are being thrown around here. So we got a, a series of questions from Jocelyn. Um, 
who's been listening to the show. Hey, Canton, glad you're back. Was it an insurrection? Do you think the events of the last two weeks were enough to give government leadership a wake-up call? And what is your read on policy impact with regard to gun law changes in the light of what we saw? Uh, that's a lot of questions from Jocelyn, but I'm sure, Canton, you've been bristling to answer them. So you start off and let's see if, if Anthony and Pumi have anything to add. It was an insurrection, but it was an ANC insurrection. It was not a South African insurrection. This was an attempt to overthrow Ramaphosa within the ANC's ranks itself. And we happened to get caught in the crossfire. That's my take on um, uh, on that particular question. Pumi, what's your take? What the ANC tried to overthrow the ANC, Captain. Exactly. <laughs> Well, we we have, everyone knows my take on this. And I think that, unfortunately, what we've come to see is the inefficiency of leadership within not just the ANC, but within our government, come to a place where the inequalities in our society and the people's pent-up frustrations have spilled out onto the street. But also, there's a you know, my, I have a conspiracy theory as well that there is also <laughs> a bigger head that play. Gareth, don't laugh at no, me like no, this. No. I'm telling you, uh, we're no, going to be back here six months from now, and we're going to like be watching DD going. How did we get here? And it's going to be because there's a there's a there's a, a a political economic play that is beyond that that the ANC just doesn't have that Cyril Ramaphosa in particular as the president does not have the requisite skill to deal with that level of complexity there are many moving parts here and he's just unable to hold it all together to pull the people into to coral the squirrels into a particular direction and that's what we're seeing it's bursting at the seams Gareth, again, just to touch on a point that uh, you and I discussed briefly yesterday, but since Anthony's with us, I'd like to get his, uh, his input on this. One of the issues that was very clear from this is that there was a complete failure in terms of the National Intelligence Services mm -hmm. to give any information to, to Ramaphosa. And uh, I, I was throwing back to a scenario, I think it was late 70s, early 80s, I think it was around 78, 79, when uh, Pierre Viaborta came into power. And the first thing that he did was he completely gutted mm. uh, um, state security. I mean, he, he just basically, I, I think it used to be called Boss Bureau of State Security, and he tossed it out of the way, and he set up an entirely new intelligence service from scratch on the basis that he needed to have credible intelligence, as opposed to the Ramaphosa scenario that we have right now, where he's basically taken an entire intelligence service that has been put in place with his extremely hostile predecessor over the past decade. Mm -hmm. And he's expecting them to provide him with reliable information. And so much is true in so many departments. We touched on this in terms of the National Prosecution Authority. Again, the, uh, exactly the same problem. It's all uh, nice and well to put in Shamila Batoy as head of the, uh, the NPA, but when she has all of the Jacob Zuma deployees under her, how is she actually supposed to prosecute anything when the dockets are immediately going to be handed over to the people that are being investigated? So, Anthony, I, I, you were there at the time, I guess. So maybe some uh, insight in, into uh, what went, uh, went down at the time. Yes, okay. Well, uh, look, you've asked a lot of questions there. I don't know if we had enough time. But uh, let me just quickly give you an answer to this. Was it insurrection? 
Yes, I think what it was, it was a very sophisticated attempt run by, by very smart people to try and lubricate the traditional cleavage lines of South Africa, which is race. And in that regard, it failed. It was, it was an insurrection, an internal power struggle within the ANC trying to lubricate the, the lines of race, uh, but, but, but a, a spectacular failure. Um, to, to answer your other question, um, yes, uh, it, it's a lot, lot more complex than you've made it out there. Uh, P.W. Boerter, when he came to power, you must remember he overthrew uh, uh, B.J. Foster, and B.J. Foster uh, uh, came unstuck over the info scandal, and the info scandal was about the Bureau of State Security uh, uh, waylaying, in fact, 30 million rands worth of money. So they took 30 million rands of money out of one budget, and they put it in another budget, and for that they were in trouble. Uh, now, if you fast forward that, uh, what uh, sir, what what uh, 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 Jacob Zuma did when he became president? Uh, the, I remember he became he became president through an internal what I would call an internal putsch or an internal coup, for want of a better word, uh, at Polakwani, uh, where where he used elements of uh, of the intelligence apparatus, uh, but they were external to the the service at that point in time. He used them to actually put himself in power. So one of the first things he did when he came to power was he merged the South African Secret Service, where I used to be a staff officer, uh, with the with the National Inter Intelligence Agency, the internal service. He merged them into a thing called the State Security Agency, the SSA, which really mirrors BOSS. It's exactly the same as what boss used to do. The only difference being now that uh, the, the, uh, the Zonda Commission of Inquiry has indicated that uh, they've misappropriated over a billion rand. So it's orders and orders <laughs> of magnitude worse than boss. But, uh, but that's what they are they do now. They engaged in completely illegal activity because uh, I was involved in the, uh, in the initial uh, setting up of our, of our democratic oversight structures for our intelligence services. And in fact, the reason why I'm not uh, uh, still a serving member of the intelligence community is precisely because of the internal power struggles that were waged over the time that Jacob Zuma was making his move to come into power. And I was one of the guys that uh, I decided to jump before I was pushed. Uh, but it was, you know, the writing was clearly on the wall that this is where it was going. I have a question. You know, you talk about extremely intelligent and sophisticated players who try to to create this, who try to ex, um, ex appropriate and also exploit something, a cleavage that is already there. Who, in all of the players that we know, mm. is sophisticated enough to pull that off? Is it Jacob Zuma's camp? Like, I'm just, I'm interested to know who you think is, is as sophisticated yeah. and as organized and as intelligent as what it took to create the havoc that we saw in the past two weeks and still continue to see. If I look at what's happening in Cape Town with the taxi violence, mm. it's, it's a very similar, they've taken advantage of what, what in Cape Town would isolate Cape Town and create chaos there and are, are using that to create chaos. What's happening with Transnet? I don't think these are all isolated incidences. Who has that capacity? Yeah, I can easily answer that one because um, I was working on that matter before before I found myself per, per G. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, what 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 was very evident in the work that we were doing at that point in time? We were doing uh, work uh, just to give some historic context uh, in the in the transition uh, to democracy. Uh, the police forces were completely in disarray because of the Harms Commission of Inquiry and all of the the, the hit squad activities and the flock blasters and all of that kind of dirty 
tricks department, okay? So the police department was in, a, was in disarray. And as a result of it, there was, there was never the ability to create a crime intelligence capability. And you still hear today, crime intelligence, always about this, 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 this infighting in crime intelligence. It's never been stable from the time we transitioned, okay? So at that point in time, a decision was made because of the experience that my team had in, in, in specialist work that we had been doing to, you know, as part of the enabling uh, environment for Cadessa to take place. Uh, a decision was made to place under my control a, uh, uh, an experimental unit looking at crime intelligence. And we started looking at cash and transit heists. Uh, those, days, those days, crash and trance was a big issue. Mm. And we deployed a, t- uh, a special forces team, uh, ex-Rekis. Uh, in fact, we deployed into the field and we started making stunning, stunning successes. But be, be that as it may, what we discovered at that point in time is a very sophisticated criminal syndicate at work, extremely sophisticated. These are not the politicians that you see you know, uh, on, 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 on Facebook. Uh, uh, you, you must appreciate now if we zoom out what Jacob Zuma did in his, in his presidency he effectively stole a quarter of the GDP of the country, 25% of the GDP of the country. And that's a big number. Huge. And that quarter of the GDP of, of, of the country, it might even be bigger once we know the, the, no, no more details. But, but in order to move that kind of money out of the country, you need a sophisticated network of money launderers, etc. And that is also what gives me hope. Because that means that it's not the South African prosecuting authority that's interested in this matter. We're not talking about the FBI. We're talking about the American, the British, uh, American Secret Service because dollars were involved, money laundering was involved, etc. So I am convinced that this is actually the, this is the silver lining in that whole dark day, dark day. Because now we've got the big boys in the room. Now we don't see them. They behind there. They don't, they don't, they don't come out on Twitter and make little statements of what they're doing. Okay. They just do it. And this is what's going to be coming down in the near future. So yes, Yes, it was extremely sophisticated. The messaging was sophisticated. It was, it was almost military precision. And in fact, I can zoom back. Uh, I, I live in the Ugu district, uh, the Ugu uh, uh, district municipality of uh, KZN, uh, centered on Port Shepston. And for the last two years, we've been seeing surgical strikes, surgical military special force precision type of strikes against, uh, against water. Water infrastructure, a certain valve is taken out, a certain pump is destroyed, a certain a hmm. piece of pipeline is taken out. But, but it's not just any piece of pipeline. It's a piece of pipeline that is very difficult to replace, and it means that that reservoir is going to drain, and you're going to be without water for a month. Okay, So this, is, this speaks to a sophisticated targeting command and control capability. So there's no question of doubt that there was a lot of sophistication in, in this thing. Uh, you know, the, the, the puppets that you see, the politicians, they just the stooges. They're just the beneficiaries. They are the enablers for the trough feeders to feed off the trough. Okay? But wow. we're, we're dealing with this undercurrent. We're dealing with a very sophisticated undercurrent. And don't, don't underestimate those people. They will fight back. They will fight back. The thieves always do. The thieves always do. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want so, to lose this. So, Canton, you, you, you didn't uh, get into it, but guns uh, was a part of Jocelyn's question, and then we'll move on to some of the other questions that people have. But, but gun laws in South Africa and the fact that the, uh, you know, there are lobbies who are, who are trying to petition government to bring in even stricter gun laws, I don't know how that's going to help because the problem isn't legal gun owners. The problem seems to me to be uh, criminals with guns, and even the police, you could say, are the biggest problem here. So, what do you have to say about that? And then I'd like, uh, you know, Anthony and, and Pumi's comments on that one too before we move on. Well, there are two things that uh, I'm going to say, which again I've said on the show in the past. There are two things that give me great comfort living in South Africa. 
the, the first thing that gives me great comfort is the fact that we have the most incompetent military on the entire planet. The second thing that gives me great comfort is the fact that we have a populace that across the board is heavily armed. And we've, what, we, what uh, effectively has happened as a result of this entire fiasco over the past couple of weeks is that it's made it incredibly difficult for Ramaphosa to now insist that firearms be banned for self-defense. Because in terms of the Firearms Control Act, that was kind of un underpinning it, the entire idea that you were not allowed to carry a firearm for self-defense anymore. And the uh, situation that we're going to have right now is that if they try to get that through Parliament, trust me, that's going to be challenged in court. And any judge that ends up saying that that law is actually valid and has to go through uh, Parliament, any judge who says that, yes, it is constitutional, trust me, there are going to be people who are going to be extremely pissed off. And I don't believe that any judge in their right mind is going to turn around and say, we're going to disarm the populace of South Africa. So it's actually given us, I think, an opportunity. And, you know, for those of us who for years have been uh, talking about the importance of legal gun ownership, mm. and you might remember when I started the, uh, the ZACP, that was one of our 10 core principles. We wanted um, uh, firearm ownership for self-defense. And we took a lot of flack at the time, primarily from the lobbyists, from people like Gun Free South Africa. And, you know, I'd be really interested in knowing who are the people who are actually funding those guys. Because yeah. if you get to the bottom of why NGOs want to disarm a populace in a violent society and hand power to be able to enforce uh, execution by firearm only in the hands of government, we need to find out why they are pushing that particular agenda, who is funding them, where is that money coming from, what is their agenda. Mm. Good point. Anthony, do you want to add to that? Yeah, look, I think this whole gun debate, uh, I'm kind of ambivalent about guns. I'm not a, I'm not a gun lover, although I've grown up in a, in a gun culture and I'm an ex-soldier and I'm, you know, I understand firearms and all of my friends and buddies are all gun owners. But uh, mm -hmm. nonetheless, I think what's happened in the last two weeks is clearly we've seen a failing state. The state has completely uh, shown its inability to, uh, to, to, to fill the vacuum. Uh, uh, that was filled, in fact, by, by what I've called in my uh, writing, uh, I've called them militia because uh, in some cases they were organized community policing forums. In other cases, they just simply were spontaneously uh, created, and they and they were all armed. And uh, being a, a trained observer, I was going around to the barricades and observing what was going on. And what I saw there was quite uh, quite remarkable, uh, because one of the elements of what I saw there was uh, the emergence of, of of firearms that are no longer in need of having to be licensed because they're propelled by by carbon dioxide uh, gas, etc. It's not a, hmm. an explosive charge that propels them, and these things are lethal. These things are absolutely lethal, but they don't need to be licensed. I've seen people with crossbows. I've seen, uh, I've even see, saw a young kid uh, in, up in Peter Maritzburg uh, shooting people with a catty, okay? And uh, he dropped somebody with a catty. So, you know, believe me, believe me, if we're talking uh, about this, uh, you know, about this whole gun ownership, you can, you can only enforce gun, uh, gun control when the, when the state is strong enough to actually show its presence beyond, beyond the mere symbolism of being in power. And driving down a highway in the blue light brigade is a symbol of power, but it's nowhere near the reality of control. Power and control, not the same thing. Poems, you're, you're nodding your head in agreement and smiling. Well, yeah, because <laughs> laws are only, uh, well, laws are only 
only as effective as they can be policed. If you can't, if you can't enforce it, there's no point in having that law. And yeah. that's the one thing, as Kenton says, the incompetence of our government gives us hope. Because how are they going to police that? You know, <laughs> that's. Can I just make one small little observation, okay? Just to show you what the what the pressure that the police were under. Um, on the south coast, just 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 south of Durban, there's a small community of people that came under enormous pressure. The police were completely overwhelmed there. They ran out of ammunition. They reached out to the private sector, private players, private actors, got the ammunition for for the police. They procured the ammunition for the police force. Okay, so there there is one case study on its own. Okay, where the private sector was more efficient at providing ammunition to the police than they were they were unable to do it. Then you have a finance minister that comes out with austerity measures and his austerity measures are we're going to cut the budget to the police force. We're going to cut the budget to the army. We're gonna, like we have just had like two weeks of mayhem and we've seen how under resourced those two services are. And oh, actually, the best thing that we can do is we're going to cut their budget. Like, come on. Okay, how's this for two paradoxes? Two, just two quick paradoxes. The first paradox is the arms deal, the original sin that started all of this drama for Jacob Zuma, has left the armed forces weaker and less able to respond, okay, than before. Okay, that is a simple fact of the matter, okay? And uh, I, I, the, the other one, uh, yeah, sorry, the other one just... just uh, Sorry, it's got right. I mean, listen. I want to get to, to something else. That <laughs> oh, no, came so, up. So, the second one's back. The second one's back. Okay, so, 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 here we're talking about austerity. And just about a month or maybe two months ago, we had our, our president uh, uh, defending the fact that, that members of parliament earn in excess of a million rand a year of salaries. Ends meet. Okay. I mean, how how out of how out of context is that? How how I mean, how you know how how is that not a it's moment insulting. of it's insulting to ordinary people. I mean, you know, we've got such high unemployment, and he's busy saying, "Well, you know, parliamentarians can only live on a million rand a month." It's 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 criminal to make them live under anything less. Unbelievable. Yes, but the rest of us can live on three hundred and fifty rand a month, Garrett. Sure, and and I do see this is an interesting point. I wasn't going to bring it up this morning because we've got so much on the agenda. But you know, I see the news. You know, all the all the know it alls in the general news media saying. It's so important that we have this 350 rand a month given to poor people. You know, it's always these uh, these media types who appoint themselves with a mandate from the poor. And they're saying it's really important that we extend this beyond March. First of all, I want to know who they think is going to pay for that. Second of all, aren't you sick of hearing patronizing statements from people in the media and politicians generally about how ordinary people can manage with 350 rand extra from the government every month that's going to make them exactly how independent in the future it's outrageous that people are even having this conversation every time i hear it on tv it just drives me mad am i the only one well i have i, I have a quick way to fund that 350 rand a month just change the minimum wage in the country to 350 rand a month and suddenly you'll have full employment there we go it's it's as simple as that but if you turn around and tell the self-same media pundits, let's just make the minimum wage 350 rand a month. They'll say, oh, no, people can't, can't possibly mad. survive on no. 350 rand a month. You must be mad. Hypocrisy. And Contradiction City is, uh, is, is really big. 
Gareth, just to get off the doom and gloom for a second, one of the mm. questions that, 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 that someone asked me was, you know, how do we, uh, how can we turn our reputation around and attract investment yes. again? Very good. And point. I just thought I'd toss that out here. Well, go for it. I mean, this is a very valid thing because we are looking at, at a situation where generally the, the, the South African stock market has been lackluster. We've seen a huge amount of disinterest and disinvestment. And when we see violence like we saw in KZN, tourism certainly is down. Tourism is a major addition to our revenue sources in this country. But we've also got people who are actively divesting. They're, they're taking their money elsewhere because they think now, based on what we saw two and a half weeks ago, that this is a dangerous place to put your money. How can we turn that around, Canton? Where do you want to go? Okay, well, well I, I'm, uh, Anthony, okay, Anthony, you go first. Right, Anthony, you go first. Yeah. Oh, look, okay. I, um, this, little, this little webinar we're giving later on today is about this topic here. You know, water is an economic enabler. Water is the absolute ultimate economic enabler. And you can look at anywhere in the world where you don't have water, where you don't have reliable water supply, you don't have economic activity. So we believe that uh, this investment of one trillion rand that we've got to raise now into the water sector is, uh, is, is part and parcel of that Marshall Plan, part, of, part and parcel of the reinstatement of, the, of, the, of, the, of the, the tarnished trust and reputation of the country. South Africa is a country of enormous possibilities. And in fact, you know, to, to really talk about the exciting stuff here, if you look today at at, at your kind of generation, the, the people whose faces are in front of me here now, your, your generation in general has lived your entire life with profound uncertainty. Within that generation, there is a crucible of, 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 of energy, of power, of knowledge that's quite remarkable. You know, if you start harnessing those people and, and aiming them in the right direction and resourcing them correctly, we have got the all that we need, the necessary conditions for a major economic uh, 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 upkick in the future. Remember, uh, I'll just give you another number. 25% of our GDP was stolen. Mm-hmm. Another 25% of our GDP has left the country is foreign direct investment, ordinary people's savings that people are, are fearful of, of, of keeping money in the country. That's 50% of our GDP gone. Now we want to talk about giving, giving 350 rand grant to people. Who's going to sustain that? Uh, where, 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 where's the, mm. where's the tax base to sustain that? So we've got to literally get excited again about South Africa as an investment destination. We've got to start looking at this whole recycling economy, this whole, this whole uh, circular economy. Uh, you know, everything that, 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 I like that, that. that, that entire, and I mean, that, that, uh, that, circular, that, that, that yeah, dovetails, yeah. that dovetails very nicely into the, the rising tide of, of excitement around sustainability worldwide. There's a huge environmental lobby in places like Europe and those people are looking for places to put their money and uh, they're not getting returns in their own countries so what you're saying Anthony is bring it here uh, Canton where do you where do you want to see that money going and wh- how do we attract more of it look I, th- I think that the money is going to continue to come to South Africa but it's not come through the next decade or so is in terms of the intellectual capital economy mm-hmm. but that's not money that's going to flow through established uh, through any of uh, of our financial systems in this country. Let me give you a, a very specific example. Uh, if you look in terms of people who work in the creative industries, people who, look in, uh, who work in marketing, people who work in terms of advertising, people who work in terms of film editing, those are things that can be done by highly skilled people in South Africa at relatively low cost. And all of that work can come from outside the country. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, would any right-thinking peer person with those skills in our country 
want to be setting up a company here in order to be able to get that money when you have to give um, a percentage of your company off to rent seekers in the form of black economic empowerment? The answer is no. What you do is you set up an offshore uh, company in uh, places that allow for electronic citizenship like uh, Estonia, and you provide the services in South Africa, but you end up billing um, obviously at a random denominated price, but the money stays outside the country. You, that money just uh, goes into a safe little offshore account and you bring as much in as you need in order to sustain yourself. So I think that this is a business model that is already in place by a large number of people. And it's only going to grow simply because of the fact that you don't want to be farming off a portion of your business to state incompetence, to uh, black economic empowerment, to high taxes, all of those things. Cut yourself loose from the tax net completely. Well, we already that's see where we, that's where we are going to see growth. We've already in seen. Terms of the, we've seen so many South African companies registering their head offices in places like Mauritius too, for this very reason, right? Sure. That, that's exactly the point. You know, why would you, would you be wanting to pay the outrageously high taxes that uh, that we pay out here when, you know, money wants to move wherever it happens to be freest? Now, going back to the Marshall Plan that uh, that Anthony's uh, talking about, look, I've no doubt that the trillion rand will be set aside, and I've no doubt that that trillion rand will be stolen. And it's not going to actually filter down to the ground level. But what I can see happening, and uh, if you particularly look in terms of the uh, the secessionist thought process that's been gripping much of the country right now. And if you look particularly in terms of the West Coast, uh, in other words, of the, the Western Cape, which is one of the most arid regions around, but there's the Atlantic sitting right next to it. And if you have the capacity to actually put in place desalination plants that are powered by solar because you've got solar energy throughout the year, then you're able to actually desalinate enough water to be able to actually turn that into one of the most fertile parts of the country. And again, that money is only going to come from the private sector. So if you're asking me where my enthusiasm is going to come from, I think it's going to come in places where government is not going to be in a position to do any rent-seeking. Hmm. Only a few of those left. Pums, do you want to add to that? Well, first, I want to say, Dr. Anthony cannot leave the show today without telling us about his webinar and how people can get to that yes, webinar. Good because idea. I, I do think that our salvation is that the right word for South Africa really lies within the ingenuity of South Africans. South Africans are incredible people with incredible ideas and. The first thing we have to divorce ourselves from is this thinking that government is going to be going to be there for us. It's going to be the the one that's going to to create the enabling environment. We leave them out of it. You know, mm. we we've got to find the ways and opportunities that are going to make us have the money that we need to be able to live. You know, um, Canton, you talk about digital citizenship. We just um, published a book on. Amazon and you know you get a pioneer account everything gets paid through that and if you need that money you can put it into your standard bank account or whatever but I mean there's so many different things that in order to to make the world work you really 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 don't need the South African government to make it happen you just have to export your skills your brain and your ability yeah and you can still stay here in sunshine in South Africa <laughs> 
Okay, you asked me about this uh, this thing later on today. It's the Cape Business uh, Network, C- CBN. Um, I will send you a link after after we go offline here. Right. That's okay. With yeah, you. yeah, we'll post that on, on cliffcentral.com. No problem at all. Okay, so there's something I just want to quickly go back from, from the, 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 the hopeful stuff to the hopeless stuff. Um, there's a question I got from one of our listeners. I think it's an important one because we touched on this briefly the other day, Pumi. Um, I hear people like Sebenzile and Kambule on Power 98.7 trying to agitate Zulus against Indians with dangerous narratives of the Phoenix Massacre. And I was wondering if you guys had any comments on this, um, if the focus could maybe be changed to the lack of effective policing, because that is the, the, the cause of, of so much instability in places like that. But we do see these old fault lines rearing their ugly heads again. It seems an obvious and a convenient excuse for politicians to use and for their lackeys and the media to be using um we don't need to pit zulus against indians in kwazulu natal this is not good for anybody well it it happens in cycles because you remember 1949 was the first uh, uh, first time this uh, this actually happened and they found uh, um, uh, an utterly defenseless populace at the time and and that was a massacre of note that took place 1949 similar thing happened in the inanda riots of 1985 and I think that the change that happened today was for the first time they found a populace that was not defenseless. And the interesting thing for me is we still don't have an accurate figure in terms of what the death toll was in terms of Phoenix. So everyone has been trotting around these figures. I have not had any official figures whatsoever in terms of how many people actually lost their lives at the time. And if anyone here can throw light on that, I'd be really interested in it. But the crucial point for me is that it was an attempt to actually sow division between uh, uh, Indians and Zulus Mm. in KZN. And I think it failed miserably. Because if you look in terms of the way in which those uh, self-defense units were set up throughout KZN, Across the board, they were community-based and they were not race-based. It just so happened that because Phoenix happens to be an apartheid-era township founded in 1976, remember people were actually taken and dumped into Phoenix and it, and it built itself up into, uh, into a township. That's right. So because of that, the, the fact that the overwhelming majority of the people who live in Phoenix just happened to be Indian, they ended up using that as a convenient excuse just simply based on logistics. But I think using the rest of the country as an example of how it was communities that came together, it's going to be very hard for them to justify that narrative. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, can, I, can, I can add on to that by saying, saying a, a, two things I'd like to say. Number one is immediately after that happened, uh, the Zulu king came out and made a very powerful statement that the Zulu people are not in any way angry with the Indian community. So that was an attempt, a failed attempt, to replicate that, uh, that, that, that uh, fault line that I mentioned earlier on. And then the other thing is, uh, uh, being a, a military veteran myself, I'm, I'm networking to the military vet- uh, veteran uh, community, and a number of military veterans were manning the different roadblocks in different parts of Durban and Peter Maritzburg, etc. And a, a colleague of mine, a former captain uh, who had a lot of experience in the, the 1990s in the so-called township wars, uh, he, was, uh, he was nominated, he was actually elected as the sort of leader of this one particular roadblock area. And and they forged the relationship with a squatter camp across the road from Cornubia, because they, that squatter camp was being was being uh, uh, um, 
cast into a bad light by virtue of the fact that people thought that those people were the thieves. And they said, no, we are not the thieves. We are not the looting. They came onto the side of, 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 let's call it law and order, which leads us logically now into this new liberated debate that I think we're going to see going forward. I mentioned earlier on in, 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 in that piece of mind that went viral, I spoke about this as being an inflection point, almost mm. a liberating moment. Where a new set of dynamics are going to emerge, and the one new, the one dynamic now is the fact that that the vacuum has been filled by organised people, and they've they've organised spontaneously or not, but they but they've organised, and they're not going to just just relinquish that authority that control just because the mayor says you know you can no longer man a roadblock, you know, so you're going to make me do this? How are you going to make me move? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Okay, it's not going to happen like that. Mm. But the second thing is you're now going to start seeing the strangest of bedfellows come together. So who would have ever thought that the taxi industry would start coming out on the side of law and order? Who would have thought that? Okay, But I think the new debate going forward is going to be the deracialized debate of really what it is. You know, we are South Africans, pink, white, yellow, green, or whatever you are. Okay, We are South Africans. We are the bitter enders. We've stayed to the end. We are going to make this country of ours work. Country, don't 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 waste my time by saying I'm not an African. I'm a 12th generation African. I've, I've, I, I'm as much an African when the Zulu nation was only born in 1818, April of 1818. I can trace my heritage back to the 1500s and the 1600s in in, in South Africa. So please, that's a sterile conversation. Let's not go down that route. Mm. This invigorated South African society is now going to go forward, and they're not going to take nonsense from politicians anymore. No, the blood suckers have, have sucked as much blood as we are willing to give. It's no longer. A a willing donor, a sort of a, a blood-sucking relationship that we have anymore, okay? There's, there's a backlash now, you know? You, yeah. uh, an elephant can only carry so many ticks before the elephant becomes emaciated, and then, and then, and then with its tail, with its tail, it just you know, it just knocks those ticks off its backside because that's that's where the ticks always hang out. Okay, so so we are now in 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 a, in a, in a tick-free, parasite-free environment. The hyenas and the vultures can fight amongst each other. Good luck to them. The hyenas and vultures always get the last little scraps. Okay, we're going to create something new and something better. And just to go back to to, to this trillion rand we're going to raise, we're going to raise that trillion rand from private capital. Not one cent is going to get stolen because we're working right now with Treasury and the Presidency. In the, uh, I'm a founding member of a thing called the SA Business Water Chamber. And the Water Chamber has been working now on the on bringing together all the people in the business of water supply or the whole value chain of water. And we are, we, we are creating what are known as special purpose vehicles, SPVs which are ring-fenced financial entities where the capital coming in is controlled by, within that entity. It can't get bled out. It can't get stolen by other people. But we also create the skills and the capacity. Anthony, in other words, we become a little area of ex, a little bubble of excellence, you know, in this, uh, in this I'm, otherwise festive. I'm delighted to hear. I just can't believe, I, I just can't believe you didn't take the opportunity to call it the South African business not instead of chamber of water or water chamber, water closet is what it should have been called. <laughs> it would make such sense. So, so there's, there's a lot of hope there. There's a lot of hope. No, there there's, is. really is a lot of hope. There. No, there is. Um, all right. Closing comments. We've got just a couple of seconds left. Pums, what do you want to say? Well, I don't even think we need a closing comment. We can, all we got to say is whatever he said, y'all. I'm so happy to have somebody say all the things. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Anthony. That's South great. Africans, South Africans can do this. We're better than that. 
Um, Canton, you, you, you got in a couple of perlers today, but I'm sure that we'll see you again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much for being on the Burning Platform again, Canton Pele. And Dr. Anthony Turton, thank you. Pumi Mashiho, we will see you next week on the Burning Platform at the same time, same place. Make sure you put it in your diary and do not miss the opportunity to hear from really, really interesting and really smart people as we have today. Cliffcentral.com.